Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and now we find ourselves entering a new year, buffeted by the stiff winds of change. Whether you bid 2016 a fond farewell or an exhausted good riddance, its challenges have not disappeared with the dropping of a ball. And let's face it, there are more than a few open question marks about where things are headed. So today, we meet Change with Change. We've switched up our format a bit and convened three all-star roundtables to shed some light on what the future holds in the fields of foreign policy, economics, and leadership. And we'll be releasing one every week leading up to President Trump's inauguration. Today, we're tackling foreign policy. And joining us in that effort are professor and foreign policy columnist Steve Walt, lecturer Juliet Kayyem, who previously served as President Obama's Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security, and Professor Nicholas Burns, who has previously served as a U.S. Ambassador and Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs. Thank you all for joining us. Welcome. Since the end of World War II, there's been a, a world order that's been established, uh, thanks in major parts to the United States. That has been thrown into question now. Nick Burns, you once served as ambassador to NATO. Um, what What's your take on President Tr- President-elect, soon to be President Trump, and uh, how he should think about NATO today? Well, I think we're in uncharted waters. And you're right to take us back to the founding of the liberal order after the Second World War. We've been the custodians of it. Professor John Lankenberry of Princeton says there is an international system, and we are the system operator. And there's been a consensus in both of our political parties and every president since Franklin Roosevelt that we need to be engaged, we need to lead. We have alliance systems, the NATO alliance, 29 members. We have the East Asian alliance system, a set of security friendships around the world that are the basis of American power. So I think there are a lot of questions here. Donald Trump has a lot of opinions. He doesn't have a structured worldview. That's not a criticism. He's been a real estate developer, golf course developer in New York. Uh, So will he develop a governing philosophy of how to to push American power forward? Will he have experienced people around him at state, at DOD, in Treasury, in the White House, at the Department of Homeland Security, who can help him think about how to use American power at a very complex time? Um, Will he believe, as Republican presidents have said, that we are an exceptional power? or as many Democratic presidents have said, that we're indispensable to the global order. And so that means we have to every day, every week, every month, be out there running coalitions, opposing uh, Putin when he tries to grab territory in Eastern Europe, organizing an Ebola coalition as we did two years ago. That's very important. Two more thoughts. Um, He, and this was not a slip of the tongue, he, he used the campaign to consistently denigrate NATO and Japan and South Korea in East Asia. Is that the way he's going to govern? Because if he weakens our alliances, it's going to strengthen our adversaries, Putin and Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. And it's going to minimize and diminish American power. Is he going to create a fortress America? So in other words, uh, is he really going to say no to all trade agreements? Is he going to try to deconstruct NAFTA, which is part of this symbiotic trade relationship we have with Mexico and Canada? Is he really going to slam the door shut to immigrants, to Muslim immigrants into the United States, which I think would be a refutation of all of American history? Is he going to not accept any refugees? 
from the Middle East at a time of the greatest refugee crisis since World War II? These are important questions, and we just don't know the answers. And so you see the disquiet. I would even say the anxiety among our European allies. Prime Minister Abe came to the United States in the middle of November, just after the election, just to say, you know, are you going to be with me on TPP? Are you going to be with me in standing after the Chinese in the Senkaku Islands? And so Trump, Trump needs to become healer-in-chief in our domestic policy, in our foreign policy. There are a lot of gaping wounds that need to be filled. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hope he succeeds. I'm with President Obama. His success will be our success as Americans. But there are enough signals out <coughs> there that he is, um, if he's not careful, he's going to puncture some big holes in this liberal system, world order that's so important to the American people. Organization like NATO, uh, or NATO in particular, but organizations like it across the uh, planet were originally established as part of the Cold War to oppose Soviet Russia. Um, in this day and age when uh, our real security threats are from organizations like Al-Qaeda or, or ISIS, uh, do they make as much sense? Does, does Donald Trump actually yeah. uh, have a good point when he says hey, maybe we should focus on defeating ISIS. No. I mean, I think the, the idea that the, just because the threats don't have borders doesn't mean that, the, that there doesn't need to be coalitions to deal with the threats. And so um, it, it's not like there's like an ISIS person sitting out there being like, well, if I could just you know, wiggle my nose, I'll make my way to the United States, and we alone can stop that. We need intelligence sharing, law enforcement sharing, diplomatic moves, military efforts uh, to fight the ISIS threat. I think the best way a person described it, and for me right now at least, and this is the best face on it, is that we've, in terms of homeland and national security, that we've embarrassed ourselves. The idea that um, someone who sort of becomes president in a process of denigrating the other um, in a global world in which the other is us, right, is, um, is embarrassing. And I think over the long term, what you may see, uh, to Nick's, uh, to Professor Byrne's point about, you know, the Japanese prime minister, is that if there, those assurances aren't made, you're going to see a world in which the United States is irrelevant. And um, so I want to just bring it to the homeland issues because um, what I know, and I think that's true for them. Um, in particular on climate change, fascinating uh, from the perspective of a president who claims he believes that climate change is a hoax of the Chinese to having the Chinese be the, you know, the, the progressives on climate change. But also what you're going to start to see is, um, is the private sector and industries as they are right now making a concerted stand to this, to this uh, administration. We too believe in the climate accords, right? And the reason why someone in Homeland Security cares about climate change is because that's hurricanes and water rising and all the sorts of bad things that will impact us and, and migration. I think also the, the disconcerting thing or thing we don't quite know yet is, and picking up on what Professor Byrne said, is the um, issue of the other. Um, I'm not forgiving. I also should tell your listeners I'm Arab American, so you don't get to become president that way and, and I, you get a do-over. Um, and so I will, he's my president, but uh, that's about it. And. Um, the discourse that got us through him through the campaign on immigration and a wall and everything else, that's, that's going to be muted because reality is reality. You don't build a wall over water or mountains. I mean, we, and there's already is a wall, which was somehow forgotten in the discourse. I think my biggest concern is um, that Trump's campaign un unleashed something in the homeland that 
Republican and president and Democratic presidents have tamed through crises, whether it's Bush after 9-11 or Obama after a series of attacks. And I don't know what this country looks like the day after. That's my bit. After, if, if something small, relatively small like Orlando, or something catastrophic, um, um, I think the inclination of this sort of disposal of the democratic norms that that uh, that every president until this time has respected, even through a campaign, every winning president, I should say, we've had other other candidates like that. Um, I'm for homeland security purposes. I'm very worried about the the day after. One thing that Donald Trump uh, was called to task for by candidate Hillary Clinton often was his similarity and seeming uh, kinship with Vladimir Putin of Russia. And uh, the bromance. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Putin obviously is someone who has uh, leveraged those same kind of uh, that othering concept. Uh, could it be possible that? It may be in the U.S. interest to partner with a person like Putin and, and you know, actually find some uh, common ground there? Well, in, in the abstract, uh, it would be good for the United States to be able to cooperate with Russia on various issues where our interests are not completely opposed. And I would argue that one of the problems we've had over the last seven or eight years is that the American relationship with Russia has deteriorated very badly, I think both because of mistakes they made, but also because of mistakes we made. We can get into that if, if you'd like. So if Trump is able to affect a better working relationship with Putin to address areas of common concern in a way that doesn't just involve selling American interests down the river, uh, you know, I think we'll all be happy with that. But I want to pick up on something that uh, Juliet said, right, that, that we have to re reflect upon how remarkable his victory mm -hmm. really was, right, uh, and in foreign policy terms. Now, foreign policy is rarely the most important thing people mm -hmm. are thinking about in the voting booth, but I don't think it was irrelevant in this particular campaign. And what's remarkable is that Trump ran against, as Nick said, the prevailing foreign policy views that have dominated American thinking and acting in foreign policy for 50 or 60 years. And he ran head on against many of them, which is why, quite remarkably, he was opposed not only by Democratic foreign policy experts, but by over 100 senior Republican experienced foreign policy experts. There was bipartisan, I don't think it's too far, uh, strong to say, mm -hmm. horror yeah. at the prospect of Donald Trump becoming president. And yet he won. Mm -hmm. And he did this, by the way, while violating most of the norms of running a campaign as well. So, you know, what we all ought to be asking ourselves is what is this telling us about what, not just what he believes, but what did he tap into? Mm. Because what he did in attacking that consensus, it seems to me, was first of all, say, look, I've looked at American foreign policy and it looks like it's failing to me. It looks like it's not successful. He called it, in fact, a complete and total disaster. Now, that's obviously an uh, overstatement, but from the p vantage point of average Americans, say, you know, gee, relations with China, worse than they were 25 years ago, relations with Russia, worse than they were 25 years ago, the Middle East is a complete mess for which we bear non-trivial amounts of responsibility. The terrorism problem seems to be getting worse, not better. Maybe that's not right, but that's the popular yeah. perception. So he tapped into a popular sentiment, and it fit perfectly with his broader narrative that there was a bunch of out-of-touch elites mm -hmm. in Washington and New York and the coasts who liked running foreign policy but really didn't care how it played in Kansas, 
right? And it was all part of the same piece, the same narrative. Now, one final point is the problem he has now, and it's the problem we face as American citizens, is he's now in charge. And even if he had a well-thought-out, coherent view of foreign policy, which I agree with Nick, I don't think he has, but he wanted to move the United States mm -hmm. towards a different relationship with the rest of the world, not necessarily isolation, but a different one, that is a very difficult task. It, there's lots of potential for breaking of China there, and he doesn't have a team of people mm -mm. with which to do that. So watching him try yeah. to move in any of the directions he's occasionally hinted at is not likely to be pretty. Can I just well, add, uh, add something to Steve, just on the point of the election itself? Uh, shameless plug, I have a book called Security Mom, but I want to talk about the security moms because I think people who are looking at this campaign are looking at, uh, with a gas, because, you know, at the white woman vote, which did not, the female vote, which did not go to Hillary. Um, exit polls, trust or don't trust. But I think uh, Trump tapped into this sense that, you know, that, that the national security establishment talks in their five policy plans and their international relations or whatever, and what security is, is at its core, is how are my kids? Are my kids safe? Are they, am I worried about it? Um, and is there someone uh, emotionally feeling my fear? Now, he created a fear also. ISIS is, you know, you better off going, you know, you, you know you, as everyone knows the statistics, you know, eaten by a shark and hit by lightning simultaneously than dying from ISIS. So he catered to that fear, but I think there is something there for us to learn, um, which is that, um, and, and something that, that, that we need to promote, which is that ultimately safety and security is, to be honest, is about the home and the homeland. And he tapped into that in a way that I think we weren't able to. But to respond to both of you, uh, granted, mm -hmm. there are at least 60 million people out there who decided that he was the better yeah. choice. And obviously, concerns about personal security, about terrorism, concerns about economic dislocation in places like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, that was the critical issue. But there are more people out there who voted for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. She will end up with well more than a million votes greater than, than he was. This was not a resounding, this election was not a resounding repudiation mm -hmm. of the way that Washington has worked. It, but it was, there were millions of people who, who spoke out, but there were millions of people who supported Hillary Clinton. And here's a, the key point. Donald Trump wasn't straight with the American people on a number of important issues. He wasn't straight as Bernie Sanders wasn't either <laughs> on trade. Now, trade's complicated. And these trade agreements did cost many Americans their jobs. Many more millions of Americans have profited from the trade agreements. And it's the complexity of how, from a public policy perspective, of how you look at both sides of this issue that was completely lost. Trade was, was made to be a malevolent force mm -hmm. by Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Second issue, and you asked about it. Donald Trump said, what good is NATO if they're not involved in the war on terrorism? The answer to that is, they're in Afghanistan with us. I was the American ambassador to NATO on 9-11. We had never invoked in NATO, in the history of the alliance, the Operative Mutual Defense Clause, Article 5 of the NATO Treaty of 1949 says, an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. We invoked it on September 12, 2001. The Allies came to our defense. They all went to Afghanistan. They're all still there 15 years later. They've taken thousands of casualties, dead and wounded. They're going to be with us as long as we want to be there. So Trump is wrong that they're not in the front lines on terrorism. 
I think he's got a point that they should pay more for their defense. If I were him, he has every right to go to NATO and say, we need more money for this alliance. So but to disav- well, well it's, it's the way he did it in such an unsophisticated mm-hmm. manner because he has instilled doubt in the minds of the Europeans and Asians about the basic credibility of the United States. Will we be with them when it matters? And that's why Prime Minister Abe flew to the United States. Will you defend me mm-hmm. in the Sakaku Islands against, but, against but China Nick, if need be? Nick, n- there you This is what worries me, actually, that, in fact, before he's even president, by by sort of being the, you know, slightly crazy, I'm going to be unpredictable Mm -hmm. candidate, he's got Abe on a plane, he's got the Europeans talking about what are we going to do. I worry that, in fact, this bull in a China shop approach is actually successful. He's got the Chinese flying in to explain to him why he's got to keep the climate accord. For the first six months, my great fear is that this reinforces this instinct that if I just threaten people, if I just threaten to pull out, if I threaten to do X, Y, or Z, they're all going to cave. It's gonna, That's how it's worked in it, my business career. That'll work in diplomacy. That's a very interesting point. It could work the opposite way. There are three issues to watch here. One is climate change, and Juliet's right about that. If, he's, if he, if he be, continues to be a climate denier, and appoints a climate denier to head the EPA and goes into the 195-nation effort called the Paris Global Climate Pact, and he says, we're out of here, it's going to destroy American credibility in many parts of the world, number one. Number two, if he tries to unravel the Iran nuclear deal, Theresa May and Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande will not follow him out if he tries to walk out. They'll repudiate him. And third is this big question about... And and they'll make a lot of money. Their countries will make money trading with Iran. Well, and we'll lose... (laughs) Because the Iranians already have sanctions relief from the United States. Right. It will just empower the Revolutionary Guards mm-hmm. to say to the Supreme Leader of Look, Iran, we, right. we should reconstitute our nuclear program. Yeah. The Americans can't be trusted. So watch those two. Watch climate change and the Iran nuclear deal and watch how he treats the alliances. Steve may be right. I think there, there is some utility in trying to get the Europeans to do more. But our credibility of a, being a steadfast ally is so important and he may lose that if he's not careful. Well, and there's, a, there's another, I'll add one more issue, and the damage has already been done. Uh, his, uh, he's made it clear, and I think it is clear, that the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership is dead. Mm-hmm. But even more and importantly, TPP. the Trans-Pacific yeah. Partnership, so-called TPP, an exhaustively negotiated multilateral trade agreement that, in my view, had an important geostrategic element to, to solidify America's relations in Asia, uh, in particular as part of a growing competition with a rising China, a competition we hope to, to manage, but it's nonetheless very real. TPP is now dead as well, mm-hmm. and China will not be slow to start offering these countries various deals to say, well, fine, if the United States is not going to construct a trading order for its friends in Asia, we're happy to construct one for the Asian countries, and they'll become our friends well, over time. Yeah, and that's that the theory. The yeah, and that, I mean, yeah. I think that's the, the sort of U.S. as irrelevant, which may be yeah. good, but, but not, it's not good because even – Uh, the isolationist sentiment that he played into, that Trump played into, even traditional isolationists have some notion of American exceptionalism. The America as irrelevant is not an America is exceptional. It is that um, that that this is a nation that no that has lost its way, at least for the short term. Now, we we're doing the doomsday. One can hope. Right. And I think you're starting to see hints um, if, if one views Fox News as the, you know, viewpoint, the fact that, you know, 
that people are getting on Fox News sort of suggesting that we won't abandon the Iranian deal and we won't abandon the climate change deal. And um, fine, you know, we can cry over spilt milk. But I think um, I think the 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 biggest issue will be uh, considering that many of us view Russia as um, as um, having had some impact, I'm not in binary mode right now, but of all the many things that had impacts on this campaign, had some impact on this campaign. I don't see how Trump can check Russia right now. And when I think about the 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 years ahead, there's look, we've had bad presidents, we've had populist presidents, we've had corrupt presidents. This nation survives. The issue of Russia's impact on our, the, 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 the act of the democratic process is the only thing that has left me destabilized over the last couple of months. The hacking into the democratic Yeah, and, and, the, and, the, and the use of WikiLeaks yeah. and, and then the, the Comey response and the, under, and, the, and the clear, you know, cat fight within the FBI, which, which made Comey have to come out. Um, and, I, and we need to restabilize that. And I don't care who the president is. I mean, we need to assert that the process itself um, is, uh, needs to, can't be, can't be messed with. And, and it's, it was very unfortunate that, you know, that, that uh, Republicans who ought to know better did not speak up more. They're starting to about the recognition that you cannot let Russia have, you know, sort of qualitative and, you know, a control over mm-hmm. what the stories are. If I might broaden this a little bit, obviously the election of Donald Trump was a shock to mm-hmm. both the country and the world. Um, but if you look through the past decade, even half decade, um, you see a lot of very similar democratic uh, uprisings or rejections of the establishment happening around the world. You mentioned the complexity of trade agreements and how they affect our lives, but it's almost impossible to draw a straight line between how they affect, have affected each individual life. Um, how do you think that there are common threads that join uh, Trump to Brexit to um, to Duterte in, in the Philippines or uh, Modi in India, where we have had these populist uh, sort of right wing populist figures uh, win or uh, I guess anti-establishment opinions mm-hmm. win out? Well, um, it really matters what kind of signals you send in a transition before you take the oath of office. The very first foreign leader whom Donald Trump met, it was four or five days after the election, was Nigel Farage of the UK Independence Party. Now, he may have just shown up at Trump Tower and knocked on the door, but Trump had his picture taken with him. I'm on Twitter. You should have seen the explosion from establishment politicians in Europe saying, so he meets with the guy who championed Brexit, the guy who wants Marine Le Pen to win in France, the guy who wants Viktor Orban to stay in power in Hungary, the guy who's supporting alternative for Deutschland, the opponent of Angela Merkel. The Europeans are facing a major populist crisis. The Italians have a referendum in December. The French have an election in the spring. The Germans in September 2017. If we're we're not careful, we may see a continued wave of populism unseat these moderate, pragmatic, very experienced European leaders, and I think we'll be in trouble if that happens. Trump needs to signal that he supports democratic governments, democratic governments that share American values, people like Angela Merkel, people like either Nicolas Sarkozy or Alain Juppé or Francois Hollande in France, but not Marine Le Pen. 
And he has a senior counselor at the White House, Mr. Bannon, who's been on the far ultra-right of our political spectrum encouraging some of these groups. So Donald Trump needs to be clear with our European allies as to the, the values that underlie this alliance. I'm very worried about that. I think it was very unwise of him to meet with Farage before he met with Theresa May, Angela Merkel, Francois Hollande. You've seen President Obama on his last trip as president had to go to Athens and Berlin to reassure the worried Europeans we're not going to give up American leadership, which is based on human rights and democratic values. Let's see if Trump follows in the footsteps of Barack Obama. I mean, this, I, I'm glad you raised it because this whole question of what's happened to sort of the liberal world order, mm -hmm. not just what's going on in the American elections, I think is a, a fundamental issue. A number of people have commented that, you know, historians 100 years from now may look back at 2016 as, you know, a critical date like 1938 was or mm -hmm. 1914 or any number of other ones. Uh, again, go. I always like to go back to sort of where we were in 1993. You know, Frank Fukuyama was saying we've reached the end of history. <laughs> Tom I wish we had. Yeah, I think, yeah. Tom Friedman is writing columns about globalization. Yeah. It's going to spread everywhere. And I think, we, again, we have to all recognize that both in Europe and the United States, there were some important policy mistakes yeah, made. Sure. The creation of the euro now looks like it was premature uh, and complicated problems. The, obviously, the financial crisis of 2008 is critical to this because it has mm. a big impact on, uh, on Europe as well. In our case, the Iraq War, uh, etc. cetera. Um, and I think what people missed uh, Nick has already alluded to this, is that for all the benefits that globalization had brought, it had negative consequences for some. Most definitely. And yeah. none definitely. of the governments that were most in the vanguard of promoting globalization, and the United States really was, I think, the mm -hmm. leader in that regard, did enough to deal That's with right. the social and political consequences of rapidly expanding uh, in world markets. The Trump's decision to meet with Farage, I agree, was a mistake, and it's the issue I was actually going to pivot to, which is the challenges Trump now faces. I'm not sympathetic to the man at all, yeah. but he now has a real problem. He wants to run a radical policy. He's claiming he's going to sort of drain the swamp in Washington, completely alter our foreign relations, etc. And here's his dilemma. If he tries to do that with a bunch of Trumpists, yeah. right? These are people with no policy experience at all, very extreme views. They're going to make enormous rookie mistakes, like having his first meeting be with Nigel Farage. Any experienced person with some Washington, uh, you know, uh, status would have known that's not the right step to take. And so if he goes with those people, he'll make a whole series of rookie mistakes. If, on the other hand, he goes back to the same yeah. people that have experienced Republican foreign policy officials, even those who might have opposed his candidacy, they're going to want to go back to exactly the set of policies that he rejected throughout mm -hmm. the campaign. Yeah. And some of his supporters, maybe not all, but some of his supporters will think, eh, you know, we got taken. And if he tries to do it with both groups, it's a recipe yeah. for endless infighting inside the administration. So even if you agreed with all of his views on foreign policy, and I don't think anybody at this table does, it's hard to imagine how he's going to move forward right. with them in a skillful, effective, measured, smart way. And that actually is really quite alarming. Right. And um, but to the nationalist movement, I mean, the 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 not subtle aspects to it that just have to be said is the utter racism involved in all of these nationalist uh, conservative movements. And um, 
uh, and that terrifies me for a bunch of reasons, as I said earlier, including the day after. What I'm, what I think we need to do is institutions, the media, the private sector, mayors. Mayors are going to be like key in uh, the pushback, as you're already seeing with sanctuary cities, is to recognize the fundamental truth about our homeland security, which is what has made America safer. And I teach my students, no such thing as a safe America. We were built vulnerable, and, and, uh, and that's a good thing. But what has made America safer um, is two things. One is obviously our geography. Can't drive from Boston to Damascus. That's a good thing. Um, so not dealing with what Europe's dealing with. But the other is our capacity through fits and starts to really make the other our own. Um, and so that you have you don't have large groups of radicalized immigrant communities as what you're seeing in Europe. We're just too big. We're, we're too focused on assimilation. The American dream is still something that everyone believes in. So Mexicans in L.A., Irish in Boston, the Arabs in Dearborn. Um, that has reduced radicalization uh, of, of a magnitude that no other democracy has ever seen. And so that uh, we will forget that is my worry in the in the even the the hints. Uh, well, the campaign uh, clearly made uh, Muslims terrified in this nation, but the, um, the whatever actions are done, in particular after an incident, and so I just you know the 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 economic. Um, and 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 policy issues around the rise of you know Brexit and 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 Le Pen and and Trump and whoever else. But at, at its core, and this is probably me speaking personally, at its core is I believe a fundamental racism. Julie, can so, I ask you? Yeah. Julie, have a question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I actually have thought the problem is worse, but you would know much more yeah. than me that that if you begin to treat uh, immigrant communities, uh, hyphenated American yeah. communities, as potential enemies, what you do is you discourage those people That's from why. talking to the security so forces. This from, is talk, from if they're worried about somebody in their community. They on immigration, yeah. Because, yeah. So, and it's the so same thing we learned. It's, it's, yes, yes. This is exactly yeah. what I've been arguing like throughout the campaign is that that look in in and the analogy is not perfect, but um, after the race riots in the United States, every police department understood that, um, except for a few, understood that um, going to war with your populations was not a way to actually decrease uh, uh, um, uh, violence um, and in fact led to race rights. So there was a big commitment on community policing, but also integration um, of our police forces so that you have, you know, lots of African-American police chiefs, you have diverse departments. And in fact, the, the, the racial issues that have propped up in the last two years are um, are, are predominantly suburban white police departments, if you think of something like Fer uh, uh, Ferguson in black communities, and which is the exact opposite of where most uh, uh, urban departments have. So, so just take that, ratchet that up to counterterrorism. Same thing is true that over 10 years, and I give credit um, to, to George was there was a commitment that we couldn't go to war with those populations. One, because you're going to have the clash, but two is those are the populations that are going to know what is going on in them. And, 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 and that's why it's just so fascinating, I think, from someone like me who really does think about state and local capacity to protect America as much as federal capacity. We don't, we don't talk about only the feds in, when we talk about homeland security, is the pushback by mayors, but also police chiefs in the last week. New York, LA, Chicago, yeah. all of them saying 
that's not happening here because they know what will happen, which is an eruption that they can't control. Uh, one of the, I guess, central features of globalization is human migration. Um, people have to be able to move to where jobs are. Um, and that seems to be at the heart, judging from what I've heard from all of you, at a lot of the problems that have led to these democratic uprisings. Are these, are globalization, is globalization uh, just incompatible with uh, democracy if if that's the case? No, I don't think, I think at all. I mean, we've had waves of immigration of equal magnitude at other points in uh, our history and the history of the world. Just think of all the people who came from Europe between 1890 and 1922 into the United mm -hmm. States. Uh, and greatly, I might add, enriched our cultural life, our economic productivity uh, as well. So, you know, very big positive for the United mm -hmm. States. And it didn't uh, undermine American democracy, I would argue it, it greatly enriched it. I think, do think what we are learning is that the speed matters, the pace matters, the circumstances under which it's occurring. So large waves of immigration that are accompanied by a sharp economic downturn, such as we had in 2008 uh, and hit other parts of the world are going to be uh, more problematic. And also how one talks about it. There's a fascinating article by a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, who teaches at NYU in the American Interest, pointing out that if you talk about uh, the arrival of other populations and celebrate their diversity, isn't this great that more different people are coming here? This hits a button for people who are very concerned about the loss of what they hold dear, what their image of, say, an America. If, on the other hand, you talk about the people that are coming are coming to join and be one of us, you're presenting them in very different. They want to be part of America. They want to be Americans. They are all like us rather than all different. So I think we are learning that both in Europe and the United States, the question of migration and immigration has to be managed more thoughtfully than it has in the mm -hmm. past. But this is not an argument for stopping it. I agree with Steve. You know, it, Donald Trump is going to face two fronts critical foreign policy crises, the weakening of Europe, the Middle East wars, our very difficult balancing act between partnership and competition with China. But Juliet and Steve have just been talking about a second front, divisions at home. My grandparents came over on that wave of immigration in the 1890s that Steve talked about from Western Ireland. A lot of Americans traced their heritage to that and other waves of immigration. It's the greatest story in American history. E pluribus unum, out of many people are one. And if Trump's message is you can come, but you can't be black, you can't be Muslim, you can't be Mexican, it's going to destroy the social fabric in this country. It's going to undercut what's truly great about our country. And if there's 65 million refugees in the world today, it's the greatest number since the yeah. summer of 1945. And if we are not helping Europe to deal with a Syrian refugee crisis, if we have a religious means test for, for refugees, then I think we, we hurt ourselves and we divide ourselves. And look at the virtuous example we have to the north with Justin Tr Trudeau, who's taking 50,000 Syrian refugees in a country of 35 million people. We're 320 million people. And I worry that the differences at home produced by this very ugly campaign are going to be maybe more challenging. And Juliet has a lot of authority. She's thought about this. Then even the foreign policy challenges. This is a, he is facing probably the most complex foreign and domestic set of challenges since FDR. I'm not saying FDR had it worse. FDR had a much tougher agenda. Americans of the 30s and 40s did. But since then, I think it's, equ it's as equally tough 
and complex and dangerous as anything we've faced in the last 70 years. And if I were to look, I mean, on the migration thing, but also more generally on the on the uh, sort of domestic front, I mean, one there's a there's a form of migration that he can't control, which is that caused by climate change. So, um, you know, one of the, there, there's just people are just going to be moving, and that includes. New England, it includes New York, it includes all these areas that are at or below sea level that will be uninhabitable if we do not do something about mitigating climate change or building more resilient societies. So when I talk to my students in terms of, you know, go work in state and local government if you're if you're interested in climate change now, because Republican and Democratic governors do not debate climate change. Republican and mayors, mayor, Republican mayors, like in Miami, know what's happening. Charlie and so, Baker. Right, Charlie, but right, so so we, right, so they know. So in some ways, that's that's uh, interesting. But that's what I'm looking at for the, um, uh, the long term. That you know we're so focused on Pelosi and Schumer and whoever else, and you know, and Ryan and and McConnell and whatever. But um, President Trump will discover uh, that. Structurally and architecturally, our nation is um, porous, vulnerable, not unity of effort. And I think for those who are worried about his presidency, that's a pretty awesome thing. So I'd look to the mayors and governors for the next four years. Well, I didn't expect to end this on a note of hope. Come on, we do. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> and thank all of you so much for uh, being a part of this. Uh, Professor Steve Wall, Professor Nick Burns, lecturer, uh, Juliet Kayam. Uh, it's been wonderful having you all on. Thank, thank you. you. A couple quick notes before we go. First of all, I wanted to give a special shout out to HKS Magazine's editor, Robert O'Neill, for his instrumental role in making the series of roundtables happen. You can find excerpts from the interviews in the upcoming winter issue of the magazine. I also want to invite you to check out PolicyCast's new website on the Medium platform. While you'll still find it at hkspolicycast.org, we hope the shift will make it easier than ever to discover and share PolicyCast with your friends. HKS PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader. Natalie Montana is our guest wrangler. Sarah Abrams, our sage advisor. And Becky Wickle, our doting digital ne'er-do-well. As always, we welcome questions, comments, and any other feedback at policycast at hks.harvard.edu. See you next week.